What do you think is the biggest threat to the church this morning? What threat looms large in your mind? Is it secularism? It's just a big word that gets at the spirit of the age that increasingly puts Christians and anyone else of religious conviction kind of more on the fringes of society. Is it the upside-down moral compass of our age? Is it the foreboding sense that moving forward we're going to have less freedom to operate in the public sphere according to Christian conviction? What's the biggest threat to the church? We could come up with a lot of things. But what I want to tell you this morning is that it's actually not anything out there. It's in here. And more than that, it's actually in here. Our own hearts are the biggest threat to the church. And when I talk about threat, I'm talking about an eternal threat. Where you're going to spend eternity threat. So here's what I hope for this morning. What I hope is that for each and every one of you, you get your eyes off everything outside of these four walls and off of everyone else within these four walls and for you to do business with God, just you. Here would be a good prayer as we enter in. In fact, just pray this with me as I pray. Oh God, as I come to you this morning, as we come to you this morning, may I come with ears to hear. Please, Lord, reveal to me where and how the danger of worldliness is in my heart. Grant me grace to see it, Lord, and grace to root it out by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. James' hearers are in a tough spot. Uh, Uprooted from Jerusalem, scattered abroad, and tough times have a way of revealing what's in the heart. My uncle coached high school basketball in Texas and had this saying, sports don't uh, build character, sports reveal character. Same could be said of trials. Now they have a, a character building aspect. They do, that's true, but... They're revealing as well. Whatever's in the heart is going to come out when the heat of trial gets hot. And for James hears, church conflict has come out. Relationships at church, strained or broken. And that's why last week he talked about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom contributes to churn and conflict and yuck. (laughs) Godly wisdom brings peace And grace to the conflict. James double clicks now. Uh, Verse 1 of our text says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? So he's, he's double clicking. He's zooming in. He's expanding the thought he began last week. This conflict among you. What causes it? But he goes deeper. And he expands it. So let's get into the text. Turns with me to James chapter 4, verse 1. It's at almost the end of the Bible. 
So if you get all the way to 1 Peter, you've gone a hair too far, go back. Of course, if you're in Revelation, you've gone a little, a, 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 even a hair further too far, go back. James chapter 4, verse 1, and if you're new to looking at the Bible, when I say 4, those numbers are going to be big, bold. When I say 1 or 2, those are going to be smaller. So big, bold 4, verse 1 of James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Three things I want you to think about this morning. Number one, a frightful danger. Number two, a horrific result. And number three, an unbelievable offer. Those are the points in the sermon this morning. If you're helped by just following along in the bulletin outline, I just invite you to do that. So he starts with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, he asks a question about their outward behavior. <laughs> you ever ask your kids this? Why can't you get along? <laughs> Why is there this disorder and disunity? Think chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Why are you blessing God on Sunday morning but carping at each other on Tuesday morning? Think of 3.10. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Why are you doing this? Where is this coming from? Hopefully you know James well enough by chapter 4 to know that he's not asking in order to find out. He already knows. He's asking for you to think. Is it not this, he says, that your passions are at war within you? The things that are going on on the outside are coming from the inside. Your actions are coming from your inward passions, desires. Jesus taught the same thing. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words and our actions come from our hearts. We typically think about our hearts as what beats within our breast, but the Bible says that our hearts are the essence of who we are and the source of all of our desires. So James points out the simple reality that all of this yuck is coming from right here. He gives examples. You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
Now, this is shocking. <laughs> well, where did murder come from? I thought we were reading the Bible. I thought we were talking to church people. Hold on just a second. Follow the logic. You want something. Somebody stands in your way. What do you do? You get mad at the person. Why? Because they keep you from getting what you want. This is why your kids are often mad at you parents and why you actually have to stand firm and be a parent because the kid's heart wants what the kid's heart wants. And if you're worth anything as a parent, you're going to say no. And so don't be shocked when they're mad. It just means you're a parent. Congratulations. You're playing out of the right playbook. Okay? And and it means you have a window into their heart. But why is James so extreme? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Is this like mafia church? So it's like knifing each other as they're walking out the door, right? James talks like this because he has a more biblical view of sin than we do. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. James doesn't need to chill out in how he describes things. We need to chill out in how we think about things. Our supposed small sins of being angry with each other, sinning against each other in the way we talk to or about each other, those aren't small. They're murderous. He illustrates his point again. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You covet. You want something that's not yours. That's coveting. The Tenth Commandment says you you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, why do you think God would forbid coveting? Well, for one, we should be satisfied with whatever God provides us, whether much or little. Amen? But two, look at where it leads. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If you can't get what you want, things turn nasty, right? Coveting, which is an invisible heart-level sin, leads to visible relational sin, fights and quarrels. What's James' point? The nasty stuff going on in church is rooted in your hearts. Your fights, your quarrels, your avoidance of one another, your criticism of one another, bitterness, jealousy, sarcasm towards one another, all of it, all of it birthed in the heart. But then James goes vertical. So he's been talking about relational sin, our, our heart's impact on our relationships with each other. Now he, he transitions and he just goes vertical, our heart's impact on our relationship with God. The the next example says, you you do not have because you do not ask. That's prayer. God invites us to ask him for things in prayer. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We have this mind-blowing direct access to God. We have God's private cell phone number. He promises to take our call. But these Christians aren't praying. 
These Christians are praying, they aren't, they aren't asking, they aren't going before the throne. But even when they do, something's wrong. You ask and you do not receive. Even when they pray, they're not receiving what they've asked for. We have to ask ourselves, what in the world could lead to prayerlessness on our part and answerlessness on the God of heaven's part? Hearts that are in the wrong place. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You just want what you just want. That's why you're not praying. You don't really want God. You just want God to give you what you want God to give you. And so God doesn't answer because God's not a vending machine. We need to pause and just think about this principle, brothers and sisters. We have got to watch our hearts. I praise God as I was just thinking about this and preparing for this this week. I praise God that fights and quarrels aren't the norm in our church right now. There's a sweet spirit among us and I praise God for that. But we have got to watch our hearts. The Proverbs command us, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23. And so I have to ask you, what are you desiring this morning? What passions are there? What longings characterize your soul? You have to be careful about what you allow to grow in the soil of your heart. So if you're watching HGTV and you find yourself longing for the house you don't have or increasingly dissatisfied with those countertops, you have to be careful. If you're watching the NFL on Sunday and you find yourself increasingly longing for the new F-150 super cab, you have got to be careful. If you're at church and you notice yourself increasingly dissatisfied with yourself or your family and you find yourself increasingly wishing that you were that person or that family, you have got to be careful. Why? Because our desires, even if they're for things that aren't sinful, can either become inordinate or idolatrous. These are two good words you should know. Inordinate. What do I mean when I say that? An inordinate desire is one that takes up more space than it should. If you want a cheeseburger at every meal, that is too much. I have to say that, even though I don't really want to say that. If you want a cheeseburger at every meal, that's too much. Sure, have a cheeseburger. But don't have a cheeseburger at every meal. An inordinate desire is like that. There's nothing wrong with whatever it is that you want, but you want it too much. It's, it's taken up too much of your thought life. It's taken up too much of your time, too much of your energy. It's taking up too much real estate in your heart that God would have you to give to other things. And listen, this is serious because at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be held accountable for every idle word we've spoken. We are stewards. And we will have to give an account for our time and our talents and our treasures. I shudder. I shudder to think at how inordinate desires will impact the accounting I will give. I shudder to think how non-sinful things will become sin for you because you gave yourself so significantly to them. 
longing, planning, pursuing them. While all the while, God would have had you give yourself to much greater things. But as bad as inordinate desires are, idolatry is even worse. I need to be frank with you. Oftentimes, we just think about idolatry totally wrong. Like nine times out of ten, when we think of idolatry, we think of worshiping a golden calf. We think of bowing down before man-made images. We think of what people in a, in a third world do that don't know the God of heaven. That is idolatry, but that's not the idolatry we're typically guilty of. Idolatry is anything that takes anything. Idolatry is anything that takes God's place in our hearts as first and most important. Idolatry is anything that takes God's place in our hearts as first and most important. And all sorts of things can become idols. Health can become an idol. Children can become an idol. Relationships, money, ease, convenience, sports, academics, career. All of those things can become idols. And even though none of them are sinful in and of themselves, we, we can end up worshiping those things more than we worship God. How do you know if something's become an idol for you? Something's become an idol for you if you'll sin to get it. Or if you'll sin if you don't get it. Some things become an idol for you if you'll sin to get it. So if you stop giving or decrease your giving to a token level in order to buy the new countertops or swing the payment on the new truck, those things have become idols. You want them so fiercely that you're willing to disobey God. They've usurped his place in your heart, even though you wouldn't say they have. They have. Or if your young one's success in sports leads you to stop coming to church on Sunday because that's when said sports takes place, your young one's success in sports has become an idol. An idol is something you'll sin in order to get. And an idol is also something you'll sin if you don't get. If you can't be content unless God removes this sickness or affliction from you or your loved one, that's a sign of idolatry. You're honestly saying to God, you are not enough. I have to have this, and I cannot be satisfied without it. That's an idol. If you can't be content unless God gives you whatever that thing is that's on your heart, even that good thing, like a relationship you've been hoping for, or a position at work you've been longing for, or the, the house you've been wishing you could get, if you, if you can't do without those things, if in real time you're, you're angry, or you're filled with anxiety, so it fills your mind and you can't even enjoy the presence of God. That thing's become an idol. Idolatry is subtle, it's sneaky, and oftentimes it starts out very innocently. How terrible it would be, just think about this with me. How terrible would it be to live a discontented life or a mildly angry life? Or an anxiety-filled life because of desires that are out of place. Think about that. To have God as our Father. 
to have Christ as our Savior, to have the Spirit as our Helper, and yet to live in real time governed by things that will perish. That's a tragedy. More than that, it's dangerous. Dangerous because of what it results in. I want you to look back again at the text in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is the horrific result of hearts governed by desire instead of God. Adultery. You adulterous people. I have to be honest with you, I don't like that translation. It's feminine. You adulteresses. That's what it says. You adulteresses. And it's important because that clearly harkens back to God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament, which is characterized by what? A marriage. God has taken Israel to himself as his bride. He's her husband, yet Israel is unfaithful to him again and again. Preaching to uh, Israel, the prophet Jeremiah says this, Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers. Like an Arab in the wilderness, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore your showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend from my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all of this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, that I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, and she too went and played the whore. We read these words and we shudder. Or we should. We study Israel's actions in the Torah and we're... We're rightly disgusted and offended by her faithlessness. But brothers and sisters, if you give yourselves to inordinate or idolatrous desires, you are no different. You are an adulteress and a faithless bride. Having come under the shadow of the love of Jesus Christ, you have essentially turned to him and said, Not enough! I want more, I want different, I want what I want. And that is friendship with the world, and the friends of the world are the enemies of God. Now here's the deal. I am quite sure the James audience were not running around denouncing God 
or claiming friendship with the world. They weren't doing that at all. They were in church on Sunday reading this letter. Yet their desires, their selfish desires, their jealous desires, their lustful desires, their worldly desires, their desires speak louder than their church attendance. And here again, we have to do business with God and recognize a biblical view of sin. Do you really believe the examples I shared a minute ago are worthy of the title adulteress? Do you really believe that this contentment, anger, lustful thoughts, that those things make you an adulteress? It's hard to swallow. I I, got to confess to you, we want to pivot. We want to pivot really fast. We want to say, oh, praise God for the gospel, and we'll get there. But James is not going to let us get there yet, not until he pushes us to see what we don't want to see. That our desires are dangerous and damning. That our desires themselves, before they even find expression, our desires themselves can make us enemies of God. Jesus says the same. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole of your body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Brothers, sisters, is that your view of sin? It needs to be. Because that's the Bible's view of sin. And it needs to be because sinful desires never remain where they are. Literal adultery never begins by hopping into bed with somebody, not your spouse. How'd that happen? It begins with dissatisfaction with your spouse, here or there. It begins with dissatisfaction with someone else, here or there. It begins with all heart thoughts, right? Leading to big actions. It should frighten your heart. It should frighten your heart that you could walk out of this door one day and never walk back in ever. And you might think that's preposterous, but I would tell you, no, it's not. I've seen it happen. I've seen what happens when the trajectory of thoughts leads to action. And it's scary the things that we can convince ourselves. And it's scary the things that we can become. And you know what? It's scary to think about the jealousy of God. Verse 5 describes God as a jealous God. We think that's a bad thing. It's actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for a spouse to be jealous for his or her spouse in the right way. They have a love relationship. There should be faithfulness there. And God has given us his spirit. He is rightly jealous over us. If you give someone something that is precious to you, are you not concerned with how they make use of it? He has given his son for you. He has given his spirit to dwell inside of you. Are you going to take those things and live contrary to him? He will not abide it. 
Will a spouse stand by while her husband goes after another woman? No! And neither will God. A spurned lover is a dangerous reality. A spurned God is an even more dangerous reality. But. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. This is like a pressure release valve. All, all morning the pressure has been building and building and building. And James hopes to have you in a bit of a desperate state. And now he comes to you and he says, now, now you can listen to me. This doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. There is grace available to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is an unbelievable offer. You know, if you read in the prophets again and again, God held out his hand of grace to his wayward people. Long, 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 long after our mercy and grace would have been exhausted, God's is not. God is so unlike us that while it is still called today, as long as the sun is coming out and as long as the moon is going up and as long as we are going through the second false spring in Vermont every spring, he extends to sinners what we don't deserve. Grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's a direct quote from Proverbs 3.34. So grace is available. What's grace? It's getting what you don't deserve. You deserve his judgment, but he gives you his grace. But who is it available to? The humble. Do you want grace this morning? Do you want the favor and acceptance and light and love of God this morning? Then you must pursue the way of humility. The way of humility looks like active allegiance. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is so like James. He's not content by us being in a passive position. He doesn't tell us to wait to be acted upon by God. He tells us to act. Determine. To give yourself to God. Decide in your heart that God will be your God. Decide in your heart that his ways, as given to you in his word, the Bible, that will govern your life from now on until the end, no matter what comes, no matter how hard. This is a conscious choice. It's a deliberate choice. 
Choose this day who you will serve, Joshua said to the Israelites. Now fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. This is a choice. Who will be Lord? Even over your desires. Grace flows to all those who say, even with a trembling heart, God will be my Lord. Which, of course, entails resisting the devil. To submit yourself to God is to recognize that the enemy of his soul, what he will do with you and to you, just as he has done from the beginning with our first parents, when he attempts to draw your heart away. But you, (laughs) you must be vigilant and resist. This, my friends, is active allegiance which makes way for deliberate fellowship. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How precious a promise this is. God promises to draw near to us. Have you ever wondered how somebody would respond to you? Of course you have. Have you ever wondered how somebody would respond to you, particularly somebody that you care about and somebody that you know you've done terribly wrong? You ever afraid they're just going to rebuff you when you make efforts to come back? God will never rebuff you. Oh, you have sinned against him. You have sinned against him time and time again. Maybe you're sinning against him even right now. But he is there at the foot of the cross with open arms. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The blood which flowed from the Savior's wounds still flow, beloved. And God's grace still flows through them, beloved. Come to the fountain this morning. Come to the gospel fount and draw from the well that will never run dry and will never lose its power. This is why we Christians continue to prioritize the means of grace. This is why we give ourselves to prayer, to God's word, to saying no to everything else on Sunday and saying yes to the worship of God. We come to him on Sunday to sing and to hear his word and to pray. And in all of this, we're drawing near to him through the gospel. And through all of this, he promises to draw near to us. And then, of course, we must do the work of thoroughgoing repentance and purification. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is repentance. It's the work of seeing our sin for what it is. Heinous and wretched and adulterous. Seeing it. Not making excuses for it. Not making light of it. But seeing that this is what took our Savior Jesus Christ to the cross. Seeing that this is what nailed him to the tree. Seeing that and mourning that. And allowing conviction to have its way in your soul. The prophets called Israel to weep in sackcloth and ashes for their sins. Brothers and sisters, repentance mourns over sin. 
talked to a brother last week. He seemed troubled by something. I didn't understand what it was. I said, is there something wrong? And he said, yeah, I'm just bothered by something that happened a few days ago that I did. And we talked it through and it was, it was sin and it's not a bad thing that he was bothered by that. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And of course, I encourage them to apply the balm of the gospel. Repentance mourns over sin and repentance applies the power of the gospel to sin. It takes our sin to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for cleansing, for purification, and it nails it to the cross of Jesus Christ and it walks away. It believes Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It believes that and it lives Galatians 5, 24. All those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It believes that too. And please note the order of things here. Our tendency is to clean ourselves up before we come to God. The text says the exact opposite. Come to God. Consciously choose him as your God. Come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, then get to work on turning and purging and purifying. The gospel does not say clean yourself up and come. It says come. Come, 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 come. I will bathe you in my blood and then you can turn. And of course the end of this is that precious promise in verse 10. (laughs) Humble yourselves before the Lord. Which is what we've been talking about, the way of humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will Exalt you. This is nothing more than another way of saying you will be with him in heaven. Exaltation, the promise of eternal life. And so my appeal to you this morning, if you're here and you're not in Christ, my appeal to you is to number one, be afraid of who God is. He is your creator and your sustainer and you have spurned him every single day of your life by not giving him his due. But then know that he offers grace. Do not clean up. Attempt to clean up. Come to Christ. And be clean. Yes, work is involved in being a Christian, but it is not work in order to be accepted. It is work because you have been accepted. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to take the sin and the penalty of sin that I deserve upon himself. He took that sin upon himself. And then he rose from the grave three days later, promising that all who turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven. Come to Jesus through the gospel. Come to the Lord through the gospel. And then the Lord will help you 
with all of these desires that you can't get a hold of, and you know you can't get a hold of them, he'll help you. And then to my brothers and sisters, I just want to return to the question I asked of the first. What's the biggest danger in your life? It's your heart. It's, it's you. <laughs> You're the biggest danger in your life. Congratulations. It's your passions. That's where sin originates. That's where sin dwells. That's where sin grows. It's from here that you can become an adulteress and an enemy of God. And don't bank on mere church attendance here. Bank on gospel repentance here. Bound up in coming to Christ for salvation is faith and repentance, right? A nod would be very good at this point. Good. Do you think those are one-time things, brothers and sisters? Of course they're not. Of course they're not. Do you think repentance from dangerous, destructive, life-destroying sin is over once you come to Christ? No, it's really just begun. The Christian life is a life of repentance. As Luther himself said in regards to his first of 95 theses that he nailed up on the door of the church in Wittenberg, when our Lord and Master Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Brothers and sisters, what, is, what desires are lurking in your hearts this morning? What desires are unchecked? What desires are gaining speed and ground and growing? What desires are becoming inordinate? What desires are taking too much space in your life and crowding out clear priorities laid out in God's word? What desires have become idolatrous? What are you sinning to get? And what will you sin? What will, if you don't get, will you sin in response to not getting? Take these things to the cross of Jesus Christ this morning, brothers and sisters, and crucify your flesh with its passions and lusts. Take these things to the cross and pursue the way of humility. Commit yourself afresh to God as your God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. And pursue repentance and purification. This is the path to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you continue to have your way with our often squirrely hearts. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Give us grace for our lives to be lives of repentance, not a exhausted striving after it but a confident pursuit of it, knowing that we are accepted by the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.